Hi, and welcome to the Investment Week podcast for February, where we'll be talking about behavioural finance. I'm your host, Jane Arana, and I'm an asset management correspondent for Investment Week. Investment Week has been the premier publication serving professional investors in the UK since 1995. You can find out more about us by visiting www.investmentweek.co.uk. The idea of economic psychology has been around for decades, but the term behavioural finance is a relatively new one. It's a concept that seeks to combine psychological theories with conventional economics and find explanations as to why people make certain, somewhat irrational decisions. I'll be joined by my Investment Week colleagues to discuss the biggest stories of the year so far. But first up, to talk about behavioural finance, I went to Barclays Wealth and Investments to speak to its head of behavioural finance, Peter Brooks. I'm here with Peter Brooks, Head of Behavioural Finance at Barclays Wealth and Investments. Thanks for joining me today, Peter. So for our listeners who may have heard of the term behavioural finance but aren't quite sure what it means exactly, can you just briefly explain the the concept? Yeah, so behavioural finance is the use of economics and psychology and decision making to really understand the behaviour of individuals and how the way that we are all biased and we're emotional individuals actually can change the decisions that we make when it relates to our money. And why is it important? I think it's crucially important um, in understanding individuals. Um, So the way that finance traditionally has set itself up is to say we know better, we're the professionals. Um, This is how you ought to make your financial decisions. And actually very few of us make decisions in that pattern because we're time poor and we might take a shortcut or we just don't have all the facts available to us, or in, in many ways we've just got competing priorities. So you know, to say to the individual who's just suffered a fall in their portfolio that it's the, really the wrong thing to, to sell, when all they really care about is sleeping tonight, feels like it's probably the wrong answer. So actually when you think about behavioural finance, what we're saying is, yeah, it's good to know what you ought to be doing, but it's also great to recognise how people will approach that decision and will make that decision. And if you can understand how people are going to approach their decision, you can hopefully help them make a better decision. And can you talk about some of the key concepts related to behavioural finance? Yeah, it's a broad field these days. Um, behavioural finance has, has sort of grown exponentially over the last 30 or 40 years since it really came to prominence probably in the, in the 70s. Um, but I'll pick out a couple for, for your listeners. Um, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the relationship between fear and greed and how that can relate to investing. And, and what we tend to find is, as you see a, a cycle of markets, you tend to see people get greedy towards the top of the market. I know it was one of the f- sort of favourite quotes of Warren Buffett, to be, to be fearful when others are greedy. And it really does play out. Um, people towards the top of the market, they can see their friends are making money that they're not making because they've not been invested. Um, returns look very great and risks look really low because markets have probably been rising for, for a long period. And that creates a, a sense of exuberance in people that they want to, to do this thing called investing. And that leads to that sort of sense of risk-taking and greed when money looks easy. Um, now, as an investment professional, you probably look at those market conditions and say, actually, that's when risks are actually at their highest. Um, what you're doing is perhaps the wrong way of thinking about it. And then when markets fall, what you tend to see is this big fear response in people. 
um, risks have gone up, their return perception has gone down, and investing looks like it's a really difficult emotional thing to do. So while an investment strategist or your advisor might be telling you you should be buying low and selling high, psychologically we're almost wired to want to do the complete opposite. We find investing easiest at the top of the market and hardest at the bottom. So actually many times we'll be buying high and selling low and that of course can be quite a costly behaviour. Now one of the things that also relates to this is an element of, of what we call the action bias. Um, and this is really that when you get a bit stressed out and anxious, you want to take control of the situation. You want to do something. And for many individuals, in the absence of, of a really strong investment strategy and good advice, that something is to sell investments. The one thing I know I can do to take control is reduce my stress completely by just holding cash. And of course, that can lead to, to quite negative behaviours while you sit out of, of your investments for a long period of time until you're confident to get back in after you've been burst. And, and perhaps you know, a really good example of this for, for your listeners who, who like to, to follow the sport is, you know, think about the penalty taker and the goalkeeper. So you're at Old Trafford, there's 75,000 people in the crowd and you're the goalkeeper facing the penalty. Nobody expects you to stop the ball. But what do you do? Do you dive or do you stand still? And the research shows that goalkeepers would do better if they stood still more often because the ball gets hit down the centre of the, the goal about 30 to 40% of the time. But a goalkeeper always dives because he feels like he's made an effort. So a similar kind of logic starts to play through with, with the people wanting to take control and, and exhibit an action. So behavioural finance has had quite a bit of criticism over the years. One critic said even though there are anomalies that cannot be explained by model financial theory, market efficiency should not be abandoned in favour of behavioural finance. What are your thoughts on that? So I think that there's a lot of truth in that, that quote. Um, the right approach has got to be a melding of, of the two theories. Not one side of that argument has the monopoly on the right answer. So and our approach at Barclays is very much to think of both of these things as being complementary. You know, if we understand how a portfolio is designed well, which is all the good stuff that comes from, from modern finance theory, you, know, you control risk, you try to maximise return for a relative level of risk you're going to have, and you want somebody to hold that portfolio for a long enough period that you know, short-term market fluctuations of a cycle all play out. That's all still the foundations in my mind of what a good portfolio strategy ought to be. But you've got to recognise that your investor has to hold that portfolio every single day. And they're going to get statements and they're going to look at their app on the phone and check how the performance has gone today. And those are the things that are going to make it really difficult to hold that portfolio for that whole market cycle. And actually behavioural finance provides you with some of the tools to communicate with that client slightly differently or to change their experience or to advise them in a slightly different way that just boosts their chances of actually being able to hold that portfolio for the long term. So I think you've got to understand both sides of this story and where they bring really strong tools to the table in order to understand how you best advise clients and how to best be a, a better investor. Behavioural finance is definitely a term that we're hearing more about. What's your, your view on the outlook for the, for the theme as is? So it won't surprise you given the area that I work in. I think it's going to be incredibly positive. Um, but I do think we've seen the, the start of a real um, movement in behavioural finance uh, across the industry. People are recognising that it's an important tool to actually understand the investors, whether that be a fund manager wanting to understand the biases of his, of his staff and understand where they're coming from and how they... You know, maybe looking for, 
for the confirming information in their investment strategy, something called the confirmation bias. And you actually want to try and remove that by forcing your investment process to, to create more challenge. Or whether it's the individual investor who has that kind of greed and fear and herd mentality and the, the action biases that we talked about earlier. I think there's a, there's a rich vein of uh, research that's now being brought out to actually help people make better financial decisions. Whereas the, the finance industry before has tried to tell people how to do it right. Now there's a recognition that humans are involved in that process and behavioral finance is the bridge to that. And technology will help as well. You know, the way that we can use apps and phones and, and help people and intervene at the point in time. Um, one of the big findings from behavioral finance is actually financial education seldom works unless it's delivered at the point in time you're making the decision. And you know, apps and phones give us the opportunity to create you know, a new world of behavioral finance in the future where data and technology can come together to make sensible interventions to help people stay on track with their financial lives. Well, it will definitely be interesting to see how, how that develops over the years. Thank you for joining me today. I'm joined by Investment Week's Deputy News Editor, Laura G, and Asset Management Correspondent, Tom Eckert, to talk about the biggest stories we've covered so far this year. Thanks for joining me, guys. Hi. Hi. So, Laura, you've been looking at the FCA's discussion paper, A Liquid Assets and Open-Ended Investment Funds, released earlier this month. Why was this paper put together in the first place? The paper followed the property fund suspensions, which occurred last summer following the EU referendum. Several open-ended property funds from the likes of Aberdeen, M&G and Henderson, some of which were billions in pounds in size, were forced to suspend after seeing high volumes of redemptions. It was several months before they were able to reopen again, with M&G not reopening until November. As a result, the FCA decided to look at whether further regulatory intervention was needed to protect investors in the liquid assets. The problem with the liquid assets is that they can give strong investment returns, but then it's difficult to sell them at short notice. The Bank of England has already given its own warnings over liquidity, describing liquidity mismatches across investment funds. It recommended further scrutiny on whether certain asset classes are suitable for open-ended funds, strengthening investor disclosure on liquidity issues and widening the risk management tools. So what did the paper suggest? As this is only a discussion paper, the FCA hasn't yet made any formal guidelines. However, it has made several suggestions and asked for responses from the investment community. The good news for the industry is that it said it did not want to ban open-ended funds from holding illiquid assets, but rather it wanted to start a discussion on how regulation could help to narrow a potential mismatch between investors' expectations of fund liquidity and how managers could meet those expectations. Topics included in the paper were retail investor protection, diversification, fund mechanisms and risk limitation. The FCA said a possible approach to protect the interests of retail investors in illiquid funds included rules to prevent the investment of both retail and professional investors' money in the same funds. However, it noted this could require significant restructuring of existing funds and could deter firms from establishing new retail funds investing in these assets. Meanwhile, the FCA said a further possibility for boosting liquidity could be strengthening or adding to existing rules on portfolio diversification. 
For example, this could include a cap on the proportion of a portfolio that could be held directly in illiquid assets or a minimum amount to be held in cash. Another approach would be the introduction of a liquidity bucket, which imposes hard or soft limits on the proportion of assets that could be realised for cash within a specific time frame. Looking then at fund mechanisms, the FCA said its current rules and guidance say relatively little about the use of fair value pricing for non-financial assets. It said it might support wider objectives if greater clarity was provided about a fund manager's valuation obligations for these types of assets. It is also seeking feedback from stakeholders, especially investors and advisors, on their attitudes to anti-dilution measures as an alternative to suspensions of dealing, on whether these measures would result in fair treatment of customers. Quite a lot going on then, so what happens next? After this, the FCA has asked that respondents contact them regarding a range of questions. These cover areas such as which illiquid assets might be held in open-ended funds, enhanced disclosure for funds investing in illiquid assets, fund managers' use of liquidity management tools, and possible approaches for the valuation of illiquid assets. Firms should submit their responses by the 8th of May. A date that we should all be keeping in our diaries then. And Tom, you've been writing a lot about the passive space. What's been going on in that sector lately? Yeah, so one of the biggest stories has been global exchange traded products seeing their highest monthly inflows since September 2008 in January, taking in some $61.2 billion during the month, the second highest on record. The driving factor was a reflationary trend characterised by rising wages and inflation. This supported inflows into global equities in general, but more notably into the US and Japan, which saw inflows of around $19 billion and $11 billion respectively. In the States, the new president, Donald Trump, has so far had had a positive effect on markets. He's promised to repeal the Dodd-Frank Act, which tightened regulation in the financial industry, cut corporation tax to 15%, and repatriate offshore money back to the US, which could give a huge boost to domestic companies. Investors have recognised these pro-business and pro-US reforms, which has led to strong support for US small and mid-cap ETPs. You mentioned Japan seeing significant flows too. Yes, Japanese equities was the second best performing asset class with inflows of $10.7 billion. Early signs of rising inflation, improved corporate earnings and a weaker yen meant improved investor sentiment was up. Emerging market equity ECPs continued to rebound with inflows of $2.5 billion. The dollar was spooked into its worst January since 2008 by Trump's border policy and withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. These factors gave investors more confidence about general emerging market performance, despite long-term expectations of dollar strength as interest rates rise. And what about flows in the fixed income space? The prospect of further interest rate hikes by the Federal Reserve failed to dampen investor appetite. Fixed income ETPs saw inflows of more than $16 billion in January. Interest rate expectations mean investors have turned it to short-duration bonds and higher-yielding fixed-income ETFs. Short maturity funds tend to have lower sensitivity to rising interest rates, so saw inflows of $5 billion. What else has been going on in the passive world? Vanguard Asset Management saw more global inflows than the rest of the industry combined in 2016. According to Morningstar, global flows totaled $289 billion. This is more than 4,000 other global providers combined, which saw only flows of $244 billion. Morningstar said this is because Vanguard has one of the lowest costs in the market. It says the flows highlights the growth in passive funds as active funds continue to lose market share. 
Moody's has also released a report predicting the market share of passive products in the US will overtake active funds no later than 2024. However, said this could happen as early as 2021. Passives in the US currently make up 28.5% of the market, but they are a smaller proportion of the market in the Asia and Europe, between 5% and 15%. Well, this year is already proving it's going to be just as busy, if not more, than last year. That's all we have time for today. We'd love to hear your comments and ideas for future podcasts if there are any particular topics you'd like us to cover. You can contact me via email at jaina.rana at incisivemedia.com. Thanks for listening.